A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. True Crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. Life isn't fair. Justice is blind and dysfunctional. And some cops aren't smart and dedicated like on television. Everything is free now That's what they say Everything I ever done Gonna give it away Someone hit the big score They figured it out That we're gonna do it anyway Even if it doesn't pay Today we're going to have a conversation with Gladys Reddick and Jessica McDiarmid. Gladys is the aunt of Tamara Chipman. The 22-year-old went missing from Prince Rupert, British Columbia, in September 2005. Jessica is the author of Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. This is who killed Teresa. Everything is free now. That's what they say. Everything I ever done, gotta give it away. I'd, I'd start by saying, because um, I think it's been a while on my podcast since I've discussed this, and maybe you and Gladys don't know this, but a little background. Um, my sister, Teresa, is an unsolved murder from a region called the Eastern Townships in Quebec, going on 42 years now. Um, it uh, That unsolved murder is uh, possibly connected to a series of unsolved murders of, of young girls in the area in the late 70s, possibly 20 or 30. She was 19 at the time. Um, and uh, my story has threads of um, victim blaming, uh, criminal investigative failures on the part of law enforcement, uh, their historical crimes, and um, like many of the cases in the missing women and the highways of tears, um, a lot of the players in the story slowly, everyone is dying, so a lot of the historical record is being forgot. 
forgotten. And I would stop there because obviously um, my story is one also of indifference and a pursuit of justice, but does not have the racism, racism element to it. So I would start there and then I would say, um, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking the, the time today. My understanding is you're both in Toronto, is that correct? Great. And I think you had a brunch this morning for an award that will be announced tomorrow. Can you talk a little bit about that? Fantastic. I mean, what a way to go out. Come on. <laughs> um, and, she was the only standing ovation, too. Oh, that's, that bodes well. So so this is the RBC Taylor Prize, right, for for new works? Yeah. And and tomorrow the announcement will be made who, who won the prize. Is that correct? Yeah. Very, very exciting. Well, a uh, Wish you best of luck both of to both of you on on that tomorrow. Thank you, and I, and I think it was really effective because it was essentially a call for change, and um, the response that I got, and also many many people approached Gladys and another auntie that was here, uh, and it seemed like they were inspired and they had sort of got the message, and I hope that that results in things actually changing. I I think I'm going to do things here in whatever order they came up they come up but since you brought it up I would I would like to talk about um the the truth and reconciliation report that came out last summer in June and uh Jessica it's simply because I just I just heard the interview with uh, I think it's Burlington Public Radio we were talking a little bit about the aftermath of, of that and how the discussion became about editorializing in the in the press. Was it genocide? Was it not genocide? Where are we? We're almost now a year later. Where are we at? And, and where do you think you're going with the call to actions? There were over 200 in, in that report. And that's a question for both you yeah, and Gladys. So that was actually the report of the National Inquiry
that were made from his National Inquiry report. And uh, 231 recommendations, I might say, were, were uh, put together by the families, the families' voices that you'll hear loud and clear. Because most of our families, as you know, there's well over 4,000 missing and murdered women across the country. And the families are the ones that, uh, first of all, have been there. And the families are the ones that know what is needed in order to uh, perhaps end violence against our women. And uh, right now, I think that a lot of people are saying, oh, well, it's just another report and whatnot. But the thing is, what we need to do now and what we are doing right now is uh, we're going to have to be forcing the hands of the government because uh, the government uh, need to, first of all, acknowledge them. I know that Justin Trudeau was uh, hesitant about admitting genocide, but he, uh, a couple of days after the report, you know, he did, he did say the word and acknowledged it. But moving forward, what we can do right now is because there's a lot of things that are based on racism. There's a lot of uh, things that are based on addictions and trauma and uh, lack of education, lack of housing and poverty. So what, what our job now is to do is get our government officials to listen to them and start providing the funding and uh, for, for programs such as our healing centers and our healing lodges, our education. Uh, start uh, digging into the roots of the poverty and start giving these women homes. Start, uh, you know... Housing and, and poverty uh, are, are one, of the, one of the biggest problems that we have. There's, there's not a community in this country that has, uh, you know, uh, at least a 5 or 10% uh, rate of uh, homelessness, which is a lot of our women that are going to the streets and uh, being forced out of our communities, especially our reserves. A lot of people don't realize that our uh, Native people, we are not all on the reserves. We are part of that Canadian system where from the residential school, the 60 scoop, a lot of us don't live on the reserves. A lot of us have been ousted from our reserves. And, and the thing is, we are forced to move into the major hubs uh, right across the board. And that's where quite often our women will fall through the cracks of the system because of systemic racism. I think the, the other parts of um, that really came out strongly to me as a, as a settler in Canada in the report was the absolute need for change in every part of society in terms of their attitude, addressing the racism that is so systemic and so completely baked into every part of Western settler culture here. Uh, so the media has to change, the general public has to change, the way that um, non-governmental organizations and support services operate has to change, and the police have to change. D definitely. Um, and, and it is, uh, I mean, the systemic problems, obvious, obviously, but we, we're, we're talking about money here. And I wonder, Gladys, in, in your experience, um, 
how far do you push? I mean, because you know there's a game to play here. You can't totally bite. I mean, you've been through many Canadian federal administrations, Harper and Trudeau. How far do you feel you can push? Um, at the same time, you have to push because it is about funding, yeah? a little bit about, um, I think, um, Jessica, you grew up in Smithers, um, and, and Gladys, you currently live in Terrace, I think it is, which is, which is on Highway 16, um, not very far from each other. Can, can you talk a little bit about um, living there? And when you first, b- both of you, realized there was this problem of Indigenous women vanishing along this highway? I've known it all my life. Uh, you know, like, I, I I have relatives. I mean, I had an auntie that was uh, murdered in 1959. 
in Vancouver. And, you know, like, she's not the only auntie. I don't, you know, like, I wasn't really totally connected to my family because I was part of the 60s group. But our elders talk, and my mother told me. You know, my mother tells me uh, about uh, about women and girls that have, uh, and relatives that she's lost over the years. So this is, uh, this is not a new issue for us. Can, can you, can you, um, Expand on the 60s scoop. I, I, a lot of our um, listeners are American or from uh, Europe, and they might not know what that is. Okay, the 60s scoop is, uh, is where the welfare system and the Ministry of Child and Family Services started removing our, uh, uh, us from our homes and placing us into uh, abusive foster homes. And in those foster homes, uh, uh, because uh, there's, there's such an infatuation with our little native kids, uh, a lot of us were sexually abused, a lot of us were turned into slaveries, a lot of us are, as far as I'm concerned, the government is the one that's responsible for, uh, for the biggest role in uh, human trafficking. And the government in that period would actually apprehend children from their families and advertise them in newspapers for a certain amount of money. You can adopt a, a little Cree boy or a little whatever. And send these kids, you know, across to the other side of Canada, sometimes to the United States, many to the United States, as far away as New Zealand. Yes. All over the world. We've got indigenous, our, our people are all over the world. So back to... Um um, growing up in that area, what, what, um, Jessica, what do you remember about it um, when you first became aware? So my, because I'm a, a settler, a white person, my my experience of it was really quite different than than Gladys's or an Indigenous person because for me it was something that I saw on bulletin boards and mailboxes. Uh, you know, when I was ten, there was a girl who went missing from Smithers, Ramona Wilson. And I remember seeing her, her picture um, and and thinking, what is this? And then, you know, as it turned out, there had been other girls earlier who had gone missing and posters would come up and you would see them, but not really understand what it was. One person described it, uh, a long-time resident Smithers described it as a sad undercurrent in the community that these girls were disappearing and, and often winding up murdered or never being found at all which is absolutely stunning when you look at the crime rates of these, these are really small communities. So you look at somewhere like Smithers, I mean, it will go a decade without having a homicide. And then you can have a 15-year-old First Nations girl disappear and wind up murdered, and, you know, there's, there's hardly, a, hardly a crime. Um. That still happens today. Well, I, I think I think there's you're right. There's a misconception there.
when you look at its budget, I mean, for a couple of years, I've had a budget of $5 million plus. The last few years, its budget is $20,000 plus staffing costs. So it, it's not... Not actively investigating anymore. They're not going out and you know pounding the pavements anymore. It's, I mean, literally, they're just there in case there's a new tip. So let's back up and talk about the RCMP, which um, oh boy. <laughs> well, gotta go there. Um, I think I think is a lot, and there's you talk about this a lot, Jessica, in the book how. It, and I'd like you to expand on this, how it is a federal force um, traditionally involved in federal issues, but sometimes that it, it's it's jobbed out to do the tasks of a provincial police force or a municipal police force, no more so than in British Columbia and Alberta. The only two forces in Canada with their own provincial force are the OPP in Ontario and the Sarté de Québec in, in Quebec. So, British Columbia, British Columbia is, uh, is uh, uh, mainly RCMP. Yeah. It's eighty uh, percent RCMP. Is that correct? RCMP. Uh, 80, yeah. Eighty percent. Yeah. 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 The only place that has their own police force, as far as I know, is uh, down in Vancouver, major hubs. Yeah, in Victoria. And Victoria, they have their own. They have their own police, city police, but. Uh, Northern British Columbia, it's all RCMP. So, so when yeah, the art, so, like, go ahead. The RCMP was formed when Canada was being formed as the Northwest Mounted Police, 1863. And one of their main tasks was to clear the way for the railway, which meant clearing Indigenous people off of their lands, their territories, and pushing them into reserves. So that the railway could go through and its land could be allotted to European settlers. And then as the Indian Act went into force and residential schools were created, one of the main tasks of this police force was picking up kids and making them go to residential school. And if the kids ran away, finding them, bringing them back to residential school. If the parents resisted or tried to hide the children, arresting the parents. And then fast forward to now, the RCMP is one of the main enforcers of the Child Welfare Act, where they go and apprehend children at vastly, vastly disproportionate rates. I mean, there are provinces in this country where almost all the children in care are Indigenous, despite, you know, being 10% of the population. So the RCMP plays a major role in that as well. Um, and then in the West, you have provinces that are almost exclusively policed by the RCMP. And those also happen to be the provinces where there are the most missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls by far. And and the issues that a, that a national police force is, the things that they're good at, are not necessarily what a community needs, no? Yes. So when you look at the history of the RCMP as the Northwest Mounted Police, they were essentially a paramilitary force clearing the land of Indigenous people to make way for this thing called Canada. And as it's evolved, on the, on the one hand, they are responsible for federal policing issues that cross provincial boundaries. So some cyber crime things, some organized crime things, um, you know, visiting dignitaries, that sort of thing. But now, with the way it's changed, and then provinces are responsible for, for policing as our municipalities. 
So the RCMP would be actually a very small organization now if all they did were the federal issues. But I think in not wanting to become a very small organization, they began this, this practice of contract policing, where provinces and municipalities can hire the RCMP to be the sort of the town constable police force. And it's really contrary to the, the culture and history of this paramilitary organization to then take on, you know, what should be more of a community policing role, like, you know, the motto of many city police forces is to serve and protect. That's not the, the RCMP way, historically, and it still isn't today. And so many experts in this will say that the RCMP is just really unsuited to the role that the majority of officers now are municipal police officers, but they come from an organization that's really not suited to do that. And uh, just to, you know, like, uh, for for the, the listeners and whatnot, if you Google Northwest Mounted Police, you will find that Sir John A. MacDonald uh, was uh, the one who decided that they needed the uh, Northwest Mounted uh, Police to control the Indian problem. And Sir John A. MacDonald was the first Prime Minister of Canada. Right. So that, so it's coming from the top, is, That's right. Right. And, um, you know, when I, in reading this, I mean, over the years, I, I thought the Sarté du Québec was bad. And then I started reading about E-Division and, um, and your experience. And I, I mean, I was shocked. I want to read just briefly uh, in the book, um, uh, Kim Rosmo, the geographic profiler, has a lot of great things to say. But one of the things he says is... Um, says that there are many great RCMP officers, but as a whole, the organization seems much more concerned about itself than what it's supposed to be doing because it's a par- it's paramount to protect the reputation of the force and less important to actually make sure the force is doing what it ought to be doing in the first place. Um, and that seems, it seems to me with EPANA, their task force to look into this they arrived at the table too late, correct? And they didn't put, have the resources to dedicate it to it, and they finished too early. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. I think so. And, and that, um, that attitude within the RCMP, uh, you know, that the reputation is more important than the actual work, was evident in EPANA's documents that I got through Freedom of Information requests about how to respond to families, for example, who are going to the media to tell their stories. And you, it just, I mean, it's so clear on all these pages and in all these notes that I received from different requests that the, the main concern was how is this going to be perceived by the, the larger public, not what is this family saying and what are we doing about it. One of the... Not we, we also have to remember that uh, the RCMP uh, also have uh, uh, another uh, reputation in how they handle even their own women that are on the force, where they're raping their own women. There was recently a very large um, lawsuit against the RCMP for sexual harassment and abuse against female officers within the force. Um, so... In terms of having faith in the that organization to protect women and girls, particularly vulnerable women and girls, you know, 
it's troubling when even those within the organization are facing that kind of abuse and violence. It's very troubling. One of the things I love about the book is um, when you allow the, the victims' families, the survivors, to speak. And um, uh, related to that, one of the things that really struck me was a, a comment by a, a family member of Roxanne Tierra who says, okay, we're on our own. We can't count on the justice system to advocate or protect First Nations women or the interests of the communities. We've only got ourselves. Um, can, can Gladys, I think I'd go to you. At what point did you become activated? Maybe you would say you've been an activist all your life, but um, can you talk maybe about that point and particularly about the walks that uh, evolved, I think around 2006, if I get the date right? Before we could start moving forward, 
So they did move forward 11 years later. Over a decade later, then they decided to move on some of those recommendations. And to this date now, not all of those recommendations are, are uh, even implemented at all. Well, um, I, I can tell you that, uh, from, you know, speaking from a guy who's lived in North Carolina for the last 30 years, um, those actions or inactions by Christy Clark were evident to me down here. Um, and, and that's a, another great quote in the in the book is from Brenda Wilson when she says, she says, there needs to be somebody uh, there to advocate for the families to keep this whole initiative alive. I don't care if you pay me or not. I'm going to do it anyway, which um, is is uh, heartbreaking because she should be paid. Um, but at the same time, just so incredibly inspiring. Yeah, and a lot of the times, when with the Highway of Tears initiative, they did after the symposium that Gladys mentioned, they were able to establish a position for a Highway of Tears coordinator. I mean, it called for two coordinators. They only had one, and it was based in Prince George, so that's on the far uh, end, one end of the highway, 450 miles away from the other end. And then that position would, it was sort of funded through bits and pieces, grants and so on. And so, you know, like when I know when Brenda was, was doing it, she would know that she had a job for the next two months and then she might not have, you know, there may be no pay for three months. They do it off the side of their desk. They do what they can and then get another little bit of money. It was never the holistic, well-funded, like permanent solution that it was supposed to be because the provincial government did not empty up the money that it promised. Yeah, and and uh, you know, like I know, I know Brenda Wilson as well. And quite frankly, she everything that she's poured into this movement, she lives and breathes this this movement. And a lot of the work that she does is on her own and volunteer. We know that the Highway of Tears initiative has basically shut its doors. We know that EPANA has basically shut its doors. If, I, if you go onto EPANA's site, you'll see that there's no information for us. And, and, you know, like there's activists like Brenda Wilson and myself who really don't care about getting paid. We do, but you know what? Even if we did get paid, we'd still, we'd fight. We fight for the rights of our, our loved ones that we lost because we want answers. Gladys, um, I, I, Tamara Chipman, your, your niece, so she goes missing in Prince Rupert on the 22nd, 2005. She's last seen, I believe, 21st, excuse me, uh, 2005. She's last seen hitchhiking, um, apparently, or at a, an industrial area outside of town. And that's, that's 15 years ago. That's a lot of time to pass. Um, because over the years, the story can change with a survivor. Um, asking you now today, um, what do you feel happened to your niece? Mm-hmm. And that's what's killing our family is that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Anything could have happened. 
there there is speculation like uh, there's there's a lot of people that started you know talking and started spreading rumors and there's you know like speculation has even told us that she's dead but as far as I'm concerned as a family member you show me her body you show me DNA then prove to me that she's dead and until you can do that then we're gonna keep looking and going back to the the systemic problems with um, the indigenous people. You're, I believe your your son-in-law said something that I thought was great. He said um, she didn't go missing because she was drunk or into prostitution. What do you say to, to I guess, the voices that will make that argument that, well, they they cause their own problem or, or you, you, I mean, I hear this a lot, um, in Quebec, she shouldn't have been dressed that way. She shouldn't have been out that late. She shouldn't have been hitchhiking. I mean, I mean, all of those I, I hear over and over again. The, that blaming, that's victim blaming. And yes, they did say that about, uh, uh, about Tamara. And then, but the, the, the thing is, you know, uh, we were actually, we were just talking about this this morning. And uh, whereas, uh, okay, yes, Tamara did go missing from Prince Rupert, B.C. She was last seen hitchhiking out of Prince Rupert, B.C. Therefore, she was living high-risk behavior because she was hitchhiking. Okay, now let's change that and go down to the other end of the Highway of Tears where we've got one beautiful white girl, Madison Scott, who went missing. She was actively out partying with with people that were drug dealers and whatnot, and she went missing. But they had an all-out, whole city, whole town of Vanderhoof out searching for her. They managed to put a $100,000 reward together to help look for Madison Scott. So what was the difference between Tamara and Madison Scott? Why was their money poured into hers and Tamara's when there's nothing? My, my my brother could only come up with a $3,500 reward. He's a fisherman. Right. I, um, I think Ernie Cray famously said this uh, about his sister Dawn. Had she been from a tonier, neighbor, tonier neighborhood, meaning white neighborhood, there would have been a lot more interest a lot quicker and possibly a resolution. Yes, and he's absolutely right. right. It's, it's worth bringing up as well, there was another case on the highway of tears, um, Nicole Hoare, who was hitchhiking. She was a young white woman, a university student, an artist, a brilliant, quirky, and a tree planter, tree planter beloved human being. And she was hitchhiking to a music festival from Prince George to Smithers to surprise her sister. And she went missing. June 21st, 2000. Yeah, and there was it was the largest uh, search in the history of British Columbia. Uh, when you look at the, the comments that the police made about her at the time and saying things to the effect of there's no relation between her disappearance and these other girls, they were high risk, they were prostitutes, they were native. This is a university-educated woman who's never had so much as a parking ticket. And yet... The behavior she was taking place in was exactly the thing that other people were being blamed for. 
And one thing that was really hard for Nicole's family and that his sister told me about uh, somewhat recently was she said when, when before I went to interview her, she had gone over old news articles again and she said she was struck again as she had been at the time how the victim blaming language was so disgusting when it came to the earlier victims who were indigenous and there was none of that whatsoever for her sister even though her sister was engaging in what they were saying you know made to a high risk person and the, and i also met with uh, nicole Hoare's parents at the uh, at the symposium and he said at the symposium that he was embarrassed with the differential treatment between his daughter and our daughters he i remember reading about how he said he had never realized that he was one of the lucky ones until he had heard the stories of the other families and how the police hadn't responded. And I mean, it's unreal that a father of a missing woman is actually standing there saying he's lucky, but he was, in a sense, you know, because at least he had help. At least the family had support and the police looked everywhere. I, um... We're, we're we're running out of time, and there's something I I really want to ask you because I just noticed it. Um, I'm I'm kind of fascinated with maps, so the first thing I did was I built a Google map um, with the the major uh, victims you mention in in Highway of Tears, um, and something that really struck me. Uh, now, when you speak of Highway 16 or the Highway of Tears. My first conception was, oh, well, it's like the 401 between Montreal and 20, it's, or, or, or Toronto. <laughs> you know, it's four lanes and all that. But when I started driving it on Google Maps, not only did I notice how rural it is and right through that thick, thick inter- interior, but the other thing that struck me is at parts it becomes very, very urban. For instance, the the highway runs right through downtown Saint or uh, Prince Rupert, and downtown, uh, um, excuse Prince um, George, and and Al- Alberta Williams was basically last seen in that urban area. Correct. Um, Alicia Germain was seen in where she disappeared. Was that a, a family native center in downtown Prince George? Can is that kind of a? Are we getting it wrong a little bit when we oversimplify what we think the highway is? I think so. Um, I mean, I think there's been massive oversimplification uh, of this story and and the terms and misunderstanding. So most Canadian media. Uh, we'll refer to the Highway of Tears using the definition of the RCMPZ Panda Task Force. So they'll say there were 18 victims uh, along the Highway of Tears, which they sometimes define as Highway 16 as well as several other highways, because the RCMP Task Force isn't just the Highway of Tears. It's a bunch of highways in, in British Columbia, and it included 18 cases. So even what the fam, uh, what the highway of tears is is very misunderstood. I went with the family definition as it was coined, which was George to Prince Rupert. But then there's also, I mean, and then you usually hear that they were all hitchhiking, and 
on the RCMP's list, which there's 10 cases on the highway tiers on their task force list, there's only three of those that are confirmed to have been hitchhiking the last time they were seen. Um, but but the kind of language, I mean, again, it goes back to the victim blaming, so they're all hitchhikers. Boom, people don't care as much. I mean, some, I remember somebody saying to me, and she was a nice little school teacher, talking about this, and she said, well, at some point, you know, these people have to start taking responsibility for their actions. <laughs> and I said, so, like, it's that should get death penalty for making a decision to hitchhike when you're 14 because you have no other way home. Yeah. But that's what, that's a prevailing attitude. Well, I, I mean, just from my own experience, I can tell you the uh, six weeks after my sister disappeared, there was an article that it just threw the question in everyone's mind. It said, Teresa Lore, a history of drugs? Question mark. And I can tell oh. you, I can tell you from that point, the case was dead because there was no longer going to be any public sympathy for someone who they thought was hitchhiking and also a drug, you know, some a substance abuser. So I, I know from experience what you're talking about. Okay. Um, I will tell you that in uh, 2007, this is uh, two years after uh, Tamara disappeared, there was a fellow that wrote an article online. This was when the internet was just starting to get into full swing. And this fellow wrote an article in regards to Tamara. And basically what he did in that article was slammed her saying that she was nothing but a drunk and a party animal. And that, uh, that, like, he basically, what he did was he released details that he was hearing from, from other people. He released details that should never have been released to the public because they were still under investigation. And he released those details, and basically people chalked her off because they believed him in saying that she was a party animal and that she was involved with drugs and that this, this happened and that happened. And that's and that's really a problem, right? Because you, what you do is you jeopardize the reality that somebody may have remembered something, so, but but the but the moment it enters their head that well I shouldn't care about this person because I'm being told not to care about this person, then they for you know they forget. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I interviewed or spoke with police officers. We referred to Tamara as a dope fiend. We referred to some of the other girls as hookers. Uh, I mean, the language was incredible. And and so it reasons, you know, not to care. And if anything, somebody who has a, a, is struggling with addiction or is a sexually exploited girl, we should care more. We should try harder. And yet, we have this society and use this language where we don't. Right. And uh, in regards to Tamara and those references to her, I will tell you that Tamara was not a party animal or a dope fiend. She was uh, a young mother who was fighting to get her child back from the ministry. Well, that's that's the narrative I heard. Her visit her mother. 
yeah, that that's what I heard long, like loud and clear in the book. And 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 Jessica, thank you for for incorporating who the victims were in the story, because um, uh, I think um, Gladys, you mentioned this that that sometimes you, you, when these stories get told, well, both of you mentioned this. You know, typically they happen on the anniversary. Like, you know, the 20th anniversary and the 25th and the 30th. Let's get a sound bite. Let's, let's go off and produce our story and, and that's it. Um, and what they produce is, I think, for the public is this feeling, and it, this is what you said, Gladys, was it just ends up making people uncomfortable and that's it. And, and you're left with this kind of um, there but for the grace of God go I and that's it. Without, uh, you know, I... I I think it's le- and this becomes an obsession about that's why I don't like true crime is true crime seems exclusively obsessed with who when I've always thought the more important question is why yeah well there we have it <laughs> um of these girls and women and of their families was that their their families, you know, took me in, taught me not only the their stories, but also about culture, about the, the real history of this country and this continent when it comes to colonial, colonialism, uh, and were willing to, you know, really bear their souls. And Gladys was, was one of the, the first and most... Um, amazing, amazing people who, who shared their story and it made me able to, to do this book. And it's really, it's not my book, it's, it's our book. It's, it's all of ours because it took all of us to, to be able to do it. How did you meet the two of you? Could you describe your first meeting? Okay, so I was actually kind of glad when, uh, when we got to Toronto, I, I looked through my email because I was like, how long have I been bugging her? And uh, the first email I sent her, I think I, I heard about her walk in 2008 when she walked across this entire country and gathered over 3,000 names of missing and murdered women and girls and took it to Parliament Hill in Ottawa. And so I read about that and I found her email address somewhere and I emailed her because I wanted to talk to her. At that point, I thought I could do this book and um, I it ends up, you know, I couldn't, I was too young and I wasn't skilled enough and I didn't have the time or the resources, but I phoned her and I remember very vividly sitting in a parking lot in my car in Prince George, looking at the railway tracks and talking to her for about two hours. And that was in 2009. Gladys, your point of view of meeting Jessica? told me she wanted to do this book and the one thing I do remember stating to her clearly is that I will do this with you but you have to print our truth mm. and I think those those words resonated with her because that's exactly what she did so many journalists and reporters will sit there and they will uh you know, do an interview with you, and then they want to put their own words and their own thoughts into it. Take away from the truth. 
if you're gonna if you're gonna be taking my words, take them at face value. And that's I was very I knew I knew Jessica was young, and I knew that she needed to to have that advice if she was gonna go anywhere as a journalist or a reporter or an author, and that. If you're going to be covering something sensitive like this, you need to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what she did. And in her research, that's exactly what she did, was she sought the truth. Is there anything in particular over the years you feel is missing from the Highway of Tears story, narrative? Something you wish that would be more prominent? Something that would have been more prominent over the years from the highway here? Yeah, just from the narrative that that we know. I think I, I would have liked there to be a narrative at all over the years. There was, you know, when you look at the scale of what happened, there's been virtually no coverage. I think, I mean, the mm-hmm. highway here and and more broadly, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is one of the most underreported stories on this continent. And, uh, you know, you would get these odd moments where there would be uh, a, a big piece in a Vancouver paper that actually did say a little bit about who the, the families were, the girls were. But it was, you know, every few years. It And this should have been, I mean, it should have been huge. Well, that's certainly, I was trying to remember when I became aware of it, and it certainly wasn't until after 2003 or four, because it did not hit the Globe or the Post or the Montreal Gazette until then. No, and it was because Nicole Moore went missing, the, yes. the tree planter, and it became an international story when she went missing. And her family, you know, really to their credit, when they, they had never heard about the Highway of Tears when, when that happened, but they very quickly learned about it. And I remember her sister telling me when they had just arrived in Prince George to search for Nicole, and they had heard that there were at least six Indigenous women and girls missing from this area previously, and they went into the police station to put up posters for Nicole. And looked at the, the war with the missing where you could put up missing pictures. And there were no pictures of any of the other girls. And meanwhile, you know, the police were doing everything to help them. And she said, she said, I remember being just so fucking angry because where were the, where was everyone else? And, and her family was very aware of that and they tried very hard to also bring up the issue of all the girls that came before her. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that is what, what brought it to prominence. There also yeah. seems to be this thread of, over the years, trying to muzzle or temper the victims. Um, I think I remember when Epana was first started, some of the families weren't included in the RCMP, rather, well, very oh, coldly no, remarking, right you don't fit the criteria or them saying, the, the, the federal government saying um, the, the Native Women's Association uh, Sisters in Spirit, that to, in your book you mentioned you can no longer use that term or you're going to lose funding. I mean, that's just that's horrible. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, this is a, 
you this is a, uh, another divide and conquer uh, uh, tactic that they've used to separate the people. And uh, yes, there are organizations. I've been ousted out of several organizations because I'm, you know, too too mouthy for them or whatever. But you know, I'm I'm still fighting for Camara, and I don't care if they don't like what I have to say. My I'm speaking my truth, and uh, there's nothing that they can do about it. Divide and conquer has been there for a long time. We have a lot of organizations that are getting funded and. Those organizations are also threatened. Like, uh, we'll use the Native Women's Association of Canada, for example. They were, they, first of all, they are our only women's organization that we have federally to talk about the missing and murdered women. So they started collecting their database many years ago. They started, I believe it was in 92 or something like that. And then once they started getting their, their database climbed up to 582 and then it stayed there for years. And so basically once we started passing them more information, their list started getting higher, all of a sudden the government said, hey, 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 everybody's learning too much here now. So you know what? You guys have to stop doing that work now. So, because if you don't stop doing and collecting this database and everything, well, then we're, we're going to cut your funding. So that's what they were going to do is they were going to cut. So they stopped at 592 and then they turned turn around and uh, they, they did a lot of their funding, but they also had to change the format of their organization and call it uh, evidence to action. They didn't want them researching anymore because we knew that there was going to be well over 3,000. I, I know. putting egg on the face of the government. I know what you're saying is true about divide and conquer because I've experienced it myself with, with the Quebec law enforcement and Quebec justice. Uh, it, oh, is, yeah. it, it is a tactic that they use. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Valdor incidents in Quebec. I most certainly am. I did a podcast on the Valdor incidents uh, because yeah. that was my limit. I just felt um, it wasn't being covered in Quebec. I talk about Quebec crime and I just had had it. And so I decided, well, if no one's going to talk about it, I am. Can can we switch to something lighter, Gladys? Quickly, <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> I no, hey, hey, you can go on like this. Uh, I will continue to listen, but I do want to know about War Pony. Well, who is War? But first of all, for our listeners, who is? And I think there are. This is War Pony version two. Tell us a little bit about War Pony. Okay, when I when I when when I first started having this, when I had this vision of walking across Canada for the missing and murdered women and gathering our database, I did. I never had a vehicle. I didn't have anything. I, you know, I'm on disability. I'm an amputee. And uh, my friend uh, acquired a van, and 
I thought, you know, I know how we can raise awareness. And what I did was I took a picture of Tamara and I put it in the middle hood of my van and I put bright pink duct tape on it. And then when I started getting more families that were coming forward, I want my, my daughter's picture on your van. Next thing you know, I've got over 100 pictures and I put it in bright pink and purple duct tape. What better way to raise awareness than, than having pictures? The picture says a thousand words. So um, that's, that's where I started with the uh, war pony. And so we used the war pony for all four of the walks. Uh, uh, Walk for Justice 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. And then two years later, uh, Tears for Justice. 
Ivy, that went to the uh, Human Rights Museum when we when we were doing the uh, National Inquiries report, and uh, I ended up parking it uh, right in front of the right in front of the Canadian Rights Museum because I knew Prime <laughs> Minister was going to be there. I saw right. that photo. <laughs> yeah, that's so, great. Anyway, uh, I. I was bent over, and the reason I was bent over talking to him is because I, I wanted him to come out and look at the pictures. I asked him, I said, could you please come out after this and take a look at the pictures on my car? The, the photos of all the, 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 the girls, yeah. yeah. And he wouldn't? He said he, he said he didn't have time. Mm. So that's what he told me. That's okay, that's fine and dandy. So, but anyway, just... Uh, I I, uh, I drove my car back home again here, and I must say, like, when my friend gave me the car, it already had 299,000 K on it. She was a postie. So I've doubled that now. It's got over 600 K on it. Well, it's still running. On this it's still running like a top, but you know what? As things happen, it's getting older. The parts are starting to break down and whatnot. So I'm spending a little bit of money here and there. And actually, just a couple of days before I came here, there's another video that's on my Facebook page. And uh, my daughter um, and her husband had just uh, bought a brand new vehicle. And uh, she had a beautiful little uh, 2010 uh, Dodge Caliber. And uh, she asked me to drive for her to go pick up her new car and everything, and I did. And then uh, we went over to her place, and then she called me to the door, and she gave me her old car. So I'm now the proud owner of the 2010. And uh, the other war pony, she's still got her pictures and everything on it. But what I decided, because it was donated to me, is I have another daughter with a family that needs a car. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be giving her that car. Wow, and this new car, I can't wait till I get back home now because I've got, I already have the pictures uh, to replace because I was going to replace them, the pictures as soon as it warmed up in northern BC. <laughs> so uh, when I get back, I'll be decorating, redecorating my, my new war point. So, this new photos on War Pony 3. Yeah, no, this one is going to be called Frilly Frog. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be called what? Uh, I'm from the small frog clan. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it the Frilly Frog. I did see that. I did see that. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. Best best of luck with that, Gladys. That <laughs> I appreciate the update. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, Listen, uh, Jessica and Gladys, I, I've taken over an hour of your time, and I'm sure you're very tired after a long weekend. Um, is, there, is there anything you'd like us to know or you'd like to add before we close? I'm good. Yeah, me too. We, I, we've got a blues box here, and we're going to get to. <laughs> I, you've, I just want to say thank you. you I you, want to say thank you for your for your your dedication and time to listen to us because it's very important that our that our uh, American neighbors listen to us as well because what? this isn't just a Canadian issue it's a worldwide issue with missing and murdered women 
it most certainly is. You, you, you are pleasure is all mine. Uh, sincerely, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, please go and enjoy the blues bar. <laughs> and good luck with, uh, with your book, and keep us posted on on when it's coming out. I will certainly do that. Thank you, thank you for saying that. Okay, thanks so much, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.